When someone that you love is, announces that they're going away, they're going out, out on a trip, they're going away for a little while, you don't feel that that departure is much of a benefit to you. In fact, you think the opposite. I'm not going to be able to be with this person. I'm not going to see this person. Um, all those types of thing, things. When our loved ones go away, we feel the loss of their presence. We feel the loss of not being able to be with them, to talk to them, to see their face. I remember when I was 12 years old, my father, who also is a pastor, was a pastor, uh, was invited to go speak at a Bible college in Manila, Philippines for five weeks. And so this was kind of a big deal. This wasn't a week trip or a 10-day mission trip. He was going to be there for five weeks. And when he went away on this trip, wow, we felt the effects of dad being away for that long. And it was hard on our family. It was hard on my mom. And I felt the loss of not having dad there. And when you feel the loss of that, the loss of that separation, dad going away and like, wow, what? this is tough. This is tough. And nowhere in my mind did I think that it would be any benefit to me whatsoever that dad went away for five weeks to the Philippines and was just down there. He came back, told us about how hot it was down there and how they had to take five showers a day, preaching all day and all this crazy stuff. But when dad came back, he brought gifts from the Far East. <laughs> he opened up his suitcase, and we had just Christmas in the middle of the summer. It was, like, amazing. I mean, everything over there is, like, really cheap. I remember he brought us all Levi's jeans that he bought for, like, $5. He brought us all kinds of designer. I think I even had a pair of Calvin Kleins, and that was, that's when, like, if you had a pair of Calvin Kleins, that was, like, really something. Amen? And uh, I got an A2000. Wilson A2000 baseball glove that my dad had purchased in Korea because he came back through Korea and he got that for, I think, like 15 bucks. And if you know the Wilson A2000, you know that was an amazing deal, especially in 1982. Amen. So dad, it was, it was terrible that he went away, but there were benefits when he came back. Amen. But generally speaking, it's usually never to our advantage when our loved ones go away um, unless we're just tired of them. <laughs> but in our text today, the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us about his departure and that it's going to be for the advantage, it's going to be to the benefit of his disciples. He's going away, it's going to be to your advantage. The question is, what are these advantages? What are the advantages? We're going to look at the advantages, the benefits, as we read this passage this morning. And these are the words of Jesus this morning. He's going to talk about the benefits to the believer, the benefits to the disciple of him going away and the, the Holy Spirit coming. Amen. The first benefit, if you're taking notes, is the helper will come. If I go away, Jesus says, the helper will come. Let's look at it in John chapter 16, verse 5. Jesus said this, But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he comes, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus tells the disciples that he's going away. And none of them asked, where are you going? And he calls them on it. I, I, I don't know what this tells us other than I think Jesus welcomes any question. Amen? If you've got questions, ask him of Jesus. He wants to hear your questions. And he wanted to hear this question from them. He says, I told you I'm going away, and yet none of you have asked where I am going. And the reason why was because their hearts were filled with sorrow. He told them they're going away. They're not wondering why. Where are you going? What's, good? What, what's the plan here? Give us the, give us the down low. All they can think of is the sorrow, the sadness of their own hearts and how this is going to affect them specifically. What this tells me is this. As Christians, we need to have, we need to be people of great perspective. People that are Christians, people that are in the kingdom of heaven, people that realize that we've been brought into everlasting eternal life that that are that we that we will never perish Jesus says if you believe in me you will never perish so our timeline continues on in the future because of that because we're part of the kingdom i think that can give us the opportunity to have great perspective on any particular moment of time any particular point on the timeline that would come into our lives. And so I think what this is, when something happens that we may perceive as sad or sorrowful or something that might grieve us, we can, not taking away from the grief, not taking away from the sadness or sorrow, but I think we can have, the Christian has great perspective and Jesus wants us to have that perspective. When the Lord does things in our lives or things happen in our lives that bring sorrow, to us, we, I think it's a good idea to stop and ask why. I think it's a good thing. I mean, even Jesus from the cross asked why. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so I think in any and every situation, we can wonder why, we can ask why. And I think the question is the doorway into us gaining the perspective on the situation that God wants us to have. And so we ask, we ask the question. But sometimes we're so focused on the sorrow, we're so overwhelmed, we're so sad that we can't gain that perspective. It's heavy duty stuff. And perhaps the disciples were thinking, well, you're going away? Well, we're sad about that. I thought, I thought you were ushering in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus. I thought we were going to take over here. I thought, you know, we were going to go out and get some horses and some spears and some things and, and, and knock some heads around. Yeah, that's what the disciples thought. They were, even to the last week before the crucifixion, they're gathering on the temple mount going, Jesus, when are you going to bring about the kingdom, right? And he goes into this whole thing telling them about the timeline and about what's going to happen. They're wondering what's going to happen to the whole thing. And then Jesus says this. He says, nevertheless, nevertheless. And there was a man who took over as president of the, of the 
Bible college that I went to. It's now called Southeastern University. It's one of the largest, fastest growing Christian universities in the country. Uh, and he wrote a book called Nevertheless, and he traced down, tracked down all the times that Jesus said, nevertheless. And nevertheless is this idea. Whatever's going on, nevertheless, Jesus is going to be doing something about it. Jesus has a plan. We just uh, sang about it, right? I, when I don't see you, you're still working. When I don't see the plan, you're still working. So we're looking at, we're sad, you're going away, Jesus. What does this mean for us? Are we going to be locked up? Are we going to be running? and taken into custody, Jesus says, never the less, never the less. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. It's to your advantage that I go away. The word advantage here in the Greek is, is a word that means to bear, to bring together, uh, to help, to be profitable, to be expedient. It's to, it's to your help. It's to your benefit. It's to your advantage. It's going to be profitable for you that I go away. It's, it was to our advantage that Jesus ascended back to the Father. It was, our, it was to our advantage. He was going away. He was going to the Father. And when he went away, the Holy Spirit was sent. The helper was sent 10 days later. You remember at, when he went away was Acts chapter 1, and he ascended into heaven, right, before, before the eyes of all the disciples. And literally 10 days later, that was the 40th day, the 50th day, the Holy Spirit was sent, the helper was sent, and this was the, the beginning of that benefit, the beginning of that advantage that was going to come. And so the first benefit of Jesus' departure is that the helper will come. The helper will come. The helper in this text is the Holy Spirit, amen? Jesus was going away physically so that his Holy Spirit could come to each one of us spiritually. So where Jesus was uh, present geographically with the disciples as he grew up in Galilee and ministered in Judea and Samaria and even in, in the Gentile areas of uh, Tyre and Sidon and all those areas, he was in that area physically, geographically, but as he ascended, 10 days later, he sent his spirit so that he could be with each and every believer spiritually, that he would come as a helper. Now, the New King James translates this person as the helper. The King James uses the word comforter, helper or comforter. The word in the Greek is actually parakletos. It's actually Para meaning beside, kletos meaning called. The idea of the Holy Spirit is the one who's called along our side. Amen. He's a helper. He's a comforter. The Holy Spirit is a helper to you. It's to the advantage that Jesus went away. Because let's just, let's just say Jesus was physically here and he was over in Jerusalem. Well, we're here in Melbourne, right? So it's, it was to our advantage that Jesus ascended back to the Father so that the Spirit would come, that he would be called alongside of us to be our helper, to be our comforter. He's called alongside of you. The Holy Spirit, there's a tremendous benefit when you come into the kingdom, the, the Holy Spirit is called alongside of you to be with you, to aid you, to help you. He gives you what you need. He gives you company so that we are never alone. He's what we need. He's what we need. You're never alone. You're never alone. You're sitting there drinking coffee. As a Christian, guess what? The Holy Spirit, 
He's right there with you. He's right there with you in the storm. He's right there with you in the trouble. He's right there with us. Each and every day, he gives us what we need. He's there. He's, he's there to comfort. He's there to help. He's there, and we're going to get into it next week, some more of the stuff that he is there to do, but he's, he's there to be everything that we have need of. But then Jesus goes in to some more things, some specific things that the Holy Spirit is going to do. Jesus says, now when he comes, he will convict the world. He will convict the world. And let me say it this way. When the, whole, when the helper comes, he will bring conviction. The helper will bring conviction. Now, you put that up on the screen, you make a nice slide of that, and you say, well, how's that a benefit? I don't, want to be, I don't need anybody to bring conviction. I don't want to be brought under conviction. That doesn't sound like a benefit. Let me tell you, let me tell you this is a tremendous benefit that the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost and has come into the world and is given and poured out on all flesh. And he says the helper will, will convict the world. And this is a tremendous, tremendous. We, I don't know that we even understand how important and how beneficial it is. Well, let me put it this way. None of us would be saved. <laughs> None of us would even be here in this room if the help, helper had not come and brought conviction and, brought, and, and, and convicted the world. The word convict does mean to convict, uh, conviction to bring to light, to expose. And one of the ways I've always taught this, and I like to say it, because some, you know, and I don't, I don't mean to soften it in any way. I don't mean to like, you know, because conviction is one of those words, of conviction, <laughs> you know, and a lot of people don't like that word. And so then I say, well, well, the, the idea of convicting is exposing so that he can convince you. See, the Holy Spirit has a job, and he wants to convince you of something, and that convincing comes through a conviction that he brings into the heart and life of every person. He's called alongside even the non-believer. Even the non-believer he's called alongside, the Holy Spirit comes in and upon the believer, amen? So there's the calling alongside. It's a threefold relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit. It's three Greek prepositions, para, en, and epi. Para, alongside, en, in, at, at salvation, and upon um, um, in that baptism of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit brings conviction, and what will he do? He will convict of sin. He says he will convict of sin. He will convict the world of sin. Now, it's interesting that it's, you know, okay, so, so if you were going to sit here this morning and, like, name all the sins, okay, get out pen and paper or, like, your iPad or whatever, we're going to name all the sins, and we're, oh, you know, lust and greed, and, you know, there's the seven deadly ones, and then there's all these other ones, right? Pride, of course. There's one sin that's the worst of them all, even more than pride, even greater than pride. You say, Really? Greater than pride, yet yeah, it's the sin that can't be forgiven. It's called blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's when the Holy Spirit is given into the world 
to convict you of sin, but you repel, you blaspheme, you refuse the work of the Holy Spirit in your life so that you're not convicted, you're not convinced of your need of Jesus, who's the perfect Savior, who's the one who wants to forgive you of your sins if you'll confess your sins, and, 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 and he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you don't allow the work of the Holy Spirit to be done in your life, that's literally, that's resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible t tells us that that's the unforgivable sin. Why? Because you have not been able to be brought to a place of salvation. You've not been able to be brought to a place of, of repentance, repentance of sins, repentance of your ways, repentance of your works, so that God can do the work of redemption, of restoration in your life. And so it's called blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Jesus said this to Nicodemus, and it highlights this idea, uh, John 3 of course, we know John 3, 16, but I'm going to read the next verse where, where it says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You know, Jesus, Jesus didn't come into the world to, you know, to condemn the world, and the Holy Spirit wasn't sent into the world to condemn the world. The Holy Spirit was brought in the world to convict and to convince that you need Jesus. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What's that? But he who does not believe is what? Condemned already. So the work of the Holy Spirit is wanting to bring you out of a place of condemnation. That's why Paul told the Romans, therefore, if you're in Christ, therefore there is now no condemnation. Amen? And so God's work, the Holy Spirit's work, is to bring you out of that place of conviction. So this is the work of the Holy Spirit. He wants to convict you of sin. And you, you need to welcome, when, you, when the Holy Spirit's bringing that conviction in your life, you know, don't shun that. You know, prize that. Welcome that. I know sometimes it's uncomfortable, but I'd rather have the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. I'd rather be called out by the Holy Spirit, amen, than have my life go into destruction, have my life go into ruin, amen. But Jesus moves on. He says he will convict of righteousness. He will convict of sin. He will convict of righteousness, now, the reason why the Holy Spirit needed to convict the world of righteousness is because the world, since the fall of man, has adopted its many multitudes of its own measures of righteousness, it, 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 their own standard of righteousness. And you will run into people that have their own standard, and they, and they become right in their own eyes, and they become right by this standard over here, this standard over here, this standard that's put out by this group or that group. And you know what? You can have all those standards. You can have all those standards. Every group out there can have their standard, and every individual across the face of the earth can have their own standard of righteousness. But there's one standard of righteousness that God has, that Jesus has. And we find the idea here. Well, let, let, me, let me go back. I, I got to tell this interesting story. Pastor Chuck Smith um, of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, years, years, uh, he's been with the Lord since 2013. 
Um, he tells the story of when he went to Sweden. And he went to Sweden, and he was with a bunch of pastors and everything, and they were ministering and all this, you know, uh, you know, church services and all the rest of it. And they get back to the to the dinner and everything, and and uh, their pastor Chuck sitting there with Kay, his wife and everything, and one of the other Swedish pastors come over to, hey, can I get you a beer? <laughs> and 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 Chuck's thinking, oh, you can't get me a beer. But they were astonished at the fact that Kay was drinking a coffee. And so, and so, so it's this idea of within different cultures, there's these different standards of, of what is. And I know Patty's nodding on the front row because they spent some time in Germany. And, and I understand it would probably not be that much different over there. But the idea is that we can have all these other standards of righteousness, but there's one standard. And we see it in the way that Jesus says it here. Um, he says, the Holy Spirit uh, will convict the world of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no more. I like how Jesus gives us the reason, right? He says, I wanna, he, the Holy Spirit's going to convict you of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And then he explains it. He says, of sin because, uh, you know, he says, of sin um, because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So because of righteousness, he's going to convict the world of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no more. Now, now that's been confusing for a lot of Christians, okay? So we're going to be convicted of righteousness because what? Because Jesus goes up? Because Jesus goes to the Father? Yeah, because Jesus came down. Jesus came down. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 4, he who ascended also descended, right? He who ascended also descended. So he first descended to the lower earthly regions and he ascended into heaven, into the Father, once again into the Father's presence. So what does this tell us? That Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, and was able to ascend back into the presence of God. No one else without Jesus can do that. You and I can't be born into the world and then ascend to the Father, or die and have our spirits go to the Father, except through the righteousness that is given to us by Jesus, because that's the only way that we can get to the righteous standard of Jesus. Because, so Jesus, so the Holy Spirit wants to convict us of righteousness because he goes to the Father, and you see him no more. So we don't see Jesus. Why? Because he ascended to heaven. And that's an example to us. It's a picture for us that Jesus came down. We celebrate it every Christmas. We stand around and we see, we have the little mangers and we have the wise men and the, the shepherds and all that. And of course, we don't know, you know, the wise men were really there at the you know, stable and all that, that controversy every Christmas. But we know that Jesus came into the world, right? And was born in a cave. And we know that he ascended back to heaven to be with the Father. So there's a standard of righteousness. And you and I can't get to that standard except through Jesus. Jesus put it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. I'll have it up on the screen for you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. He says this, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What? I mean, Jesus is just laying it down. I mean, he gets going in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are the weak and blessed. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm poor in spirit. I'm meek. I'm, you know. 
unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. And everyone's sitting there going, well, what do we do? Because the, these guys pass themselves off as being, you know, holier than thou and better than everybody else and, and all the rest of it. What are we going to do? Paul was a Pharisee. Before he was converted to Christ, he was a Pharisee. In fact, in his letter to the Philippians, he kind of gives, there's this little passage in uh, the third chapter of Philippians where he kind of gives his resume, you know? You, you kind of generally, you don't want to give your resume, you know? You'll, you, know, you, know, you know, if you have to email it or whatever, but, you know, just, you know, let others speak well of you kind of idea. But Paul lays it down. He says, if any one of you, verse 4, Philippians 3, I'll have it up on the screen. If any one of you else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Why? Because I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the stock of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is of the law, blameless. What? Yeah, that's how they thought. That's how they were. That's why Jesus always speaks to them about, like, you know, they're over there tithing, you know. The Pharisees were over there tithing, and they're, they're going down, and they're getting their, like, their, you know, the little spices. They're tithing the mint and the cumin, right? And then, you know, we're going we're gonna, to, here's 10%, you know, bring it to the Lord. And yet you're, you're, you're grievously full of pride, your whitewashed tomb. You got all kinds of things going on. Hypocrites, right? So what does Paul say? Verse 7. He says, but what things were gained to me, these things I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. And so really when you get down to it, when you look at Paul's argument here in Philippians chapter 3, he's literally like, you know, I, I mean, you could say it this way. I thought these things were all of a benefit to me. I thought these all, th all things were like, you know, things in my plus column. You know, if it was like an economic ledger, if it was like a banking statement. Like I thought I had all these things over here in my, in my corner. Yep, Hebrew of Hebrews, stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin. Yep, I got it. Pharisee? Yeah, I'm, I'm all this stuff. In reality, it was nothing. He says, I count it loss. Actually, in the text, he, he says, I count it as trash. I count it as trash. So that I could know Christ. So that I could know Christ. So that I could have the righteousness that only you can receive from Christ. That standard of righteousness that I could never achieve by anything in my flesh. I count it as lost so I can have Christ. So I can know that my sins are forgiven. Amen? And moving to our last point. The Holy Spirit will convict of judgment. Of judgment. And the reason Jesus gives is because the ruler of this world is judged. You say, well, the ruler of this world? Yep, that's why you can't be protected from your Bibles. 
You've got to understand what we were talking about last week, that the nations were given up. The nations were disinherited so that he could inherit a people, that his very own people, his very own heritage. And they were turned over. The world was turned over to the rulers of this world, right? And so the ruler of this world is judged. But the question is, when was he judged? When were the rulers of this world judged? They were judged at the cross. The cross of Calvary is when he was judged. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2 that Jesus disarmed the principalities and powers, which is a hierarchy of spiritual powers. We don't have time to get into that today, but we got into it last week. But Paul says it this way in Colossians 2, beginning at verse 13. Having forgiven you all, forgiving you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that, he, that was against us, which was contrary to us. And in other words, we had this writing, we had this indictment, there was this paperwork, there was this indictment, it was this writing, and it was against us, it was contrary to us. But, but, but Jesus has forgiven our trespasses, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, trying, triumphing over them in it. So when we talk about what the cross is about, it's literally us coming out. He did not come into the world to condemn the world so that, but, so that we could come out from being condemned and judged. And how that happened was at the cross. And when we receive the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we come out from underneath the, the state that we are with, without Jesus, without the Holy Spirit. Before the Holy Spirit ever comes alongside of any singular person, they're the Bible says they're already condemned. That's why the message of the gospel is come out from the condemnation. Come out and be free. Come out from underneath the principalities and powers. Come out because those rulers have been judged. Amen. He says, he, verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers. What's that? He talks about the principalities and powers in Ephesians. He talks about it here in Colossians. The principalities and powers is the idea of the hierarchy in the unseen realm, the hierarchy of those rulers in spiritual darkness in, 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 in the heavenlies. We've come out from underneath. Amen. And we're, co we're coming out to be free. He disarmed them. I like that. He disarmed them. You know, the, it's been said that the, the, you know, the enemy prowls around like a lion. You know? He's like a lion. We have a heavenly Savior that is a lion, right? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, but the enemy prowls around like a lion. But then when you get close enough, you realize he's been defanged, right? <laughs> he's been disarmed. He's been disarmed, amen? So he's, he triumphed over them in the cross. There at the cross, Christ defeated the enemy. So the Holy Spirit has, is, is, has done these things, is doing these things, convicting the world. And this is of a huge benefit. The Holy Spirit's presence in your life is a benefit. The Holy Spirit's presence in my life, the Holy 
Spirit's presence in the church across the world, across the face of the earth this morning, that there's a benefit because the Holy Spirit is in the church. Amen? I want to close with this. I want to close with this. But this will only be for a certain time. This might be a little heavy for us, but we're Christians and we're Bible-believing Christians and we can't be protected from our Bibles. Amen? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul talking about the time of the end, the man of lawlessness, the man of the sin, the man of perdition. Some call him the Antichrist. He says this about the work of the Spirit in the church. He says, verse 6, and now you know what is restraining. And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed, the man of sin, the Antichrist. That he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawlessness one, lawless one will be revealed. Whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, what does this tell me? This tells me a lot. Tell, what Jesus is telling me in John 16 is, is, is there's a huge, wondrous benefit of the presence of the Spirit in our lives, in the church. And he's doing this work. But what Paul's saying is here is there's a time frame that this is all going to play out and he who now restrains is going to be taken out of the way. The idea here is the word in the Greek is the idea. It's kind of the idea of in tennis when you serve the ball and you got it, you know, you have to serve the ball and it has to clear the net. And if you don't clear the net, if you've ever played tennis, that, that rope that goes through the top of that, the white part of that net, if you ever hear that, it'll smack that and, it, and the ball falls down. And what's that called in tennis? It's called a let. It's called a let. Isn't that right, Judy? It's called a let. The first one. So it's called a let. In the King James, the word restrain here is the word let. He said, he who now restrains, he who now let, letteth. It's actually in the King James English. He who lets, he who lets will let until he is taken out of the way. He who restrains, he who's keeping the ball on this side of the net. The world wants to go like this. The world is wanting to go in absolute ter terrific uh, lawlessness. And it's headed towards, what it's headed towards, we have to read our Bibles. Where this is all going, you read, what is it? It's one world, one world government. That's why I've said I don't, I, I, I don't apologize for this, that the Holy Spirit in me is going to restrain against that, okay? Until the Holy Spirit's taken out of the way, I'm going to be working with the Holy Spirit. He that letteth will let. 
He that letteth will let until he's taken out of the way, right? So what's going to happen when he that letteth is taken out of here? This whole thing is going to be unleashed upon the world in a time frame like the world has never, ever, ever, ever seen. Paul talks about it. People, people being under strong delusion. We're living in a time where no one even knows what's what. Right? And, and, and there's fear for even talking about anything because as soon as you talk about it, it's like, oh, that's political, that's political, that's political. Guess what? It is all political on that side. He that letteth is trying to let the political movement of a move towards a one-world government. When he that lets is taken out of the way, the lawless man will be revealed. And then all hell is going to break loose on this earth. Now, you say, Charles, I was really encouraged. <laughs> and that last part, here's the encouraging part. Here's the encouraging part. It's not yet. It's headed that way. It's headed that way, but it's not yet. And so wherever you are, let the work of the Holy Spirit be done in you. Let the Spirit soften your heart. Become tender towards the Lord. Become tender towards the work of the Spirit. Become tender to be used as a person that the Holy Spirit can use in the lives of others so that the Holy Spirit can begin to move and to do the things. I don't want to be a hindrance to the one who's restraining the, the onslaught of the enemy because the Bible says that when the enemy comes in like a flood, he's going to raise up a standard, a mighty standard, and that standard is the church of Jesus Christ who has the Holy Spirit living on the inside and we are that people. We are those who have been called according to his name, according to his perfect purpose, that we love him, that we want to be with him, that he's here with us and we are with him in spirit because the Holy Spirit has been sent to us. And so we can rejoice, even though you look at that and some Christians, oh, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to go. Let's not do a revelation study. Let's not do a Thessalonian study. I don't want to talk about that. The encouraging word is, that the Lord is still moving. The Lord is still moving. And so let's be encouraged in that this morning. And don't hinder the work of the Spirit in your life. Let the work of the Spirit be done because it's a huge benefit to you personally, to your family members, to those around you, to those in this community. I don't know who it was that said it. I believe Pastor Dan. The world needs Jesus. Well, no, the world needs this, and the world needs this, and the world needs... The world needs Jesus. <laughs> I was talking to someone yesterday. This thing is so complicated. This thing is so complicated. There's only one person that can unravel this ball of wax and bring love and mercy and ultimate justice. And his name is Jesus. Amen. And so let the work of the Spirit be done in your heart.